Okay. So this is book club. Uh, this is book club number nine. I think this is number nine. Um, and for this one, we're sort of moving a little bit away from the usual other books. Uh, but let's sort of, let's sort of introduce everybody here. So for this one, we're doing Anne, uh, Anne Allison's Precarious Japan. And, uh, so with me here, I've got, uh, Complexity, uh, Gene. Yeah, hi. My name is Gene. I'm electrical engineer in the United States. Uh, as always, I've got Rito. Hello, I'm Rito. Got uh, Cindy. Hello. And um, uh, we've got uh, Isaac. Hi. Um, so generally, the main format for this book club is pretty straightforward. I guess the first question is. Um, I guess I'll provide a little bit of a really oversimplified context, but um, so this book, as I as I just mentioned, is by Anne Allison, who is uh, primarily a cultural anthropologist, and her work is very much tied to this sort of mix between the political economy of Japan as well as its sort of its media industries. I would say, um, you know, she. She, when she went to Japan in the late 70s, I believe, she did some of her work, uh, on mothers, motherhood, and she has written, for instance, on the role that the bento box plays. And then that sort of essentially establishes the groundwork for, um, her work in the mid 90s, where she talks about the mother-son, where the, she talks about the mother-son stories in, uh, her book, Prohibited Desires. When we get to sort of the mid 2000s, she then works on um, sort of the media mix in a way in her work, uh, Millennial Monsters. And moving on from there, we have a sort of a, I wouldn't say such a drastic shift, but a pretty noticeable shift, I would think, um, in her 2013 work, Precarious Japan. Um, I was talking to Patrick Galbraith about this particular book because one of the things is that he studied at Duke University uh, under Allison. And he does note that there is a very interesting distinctive shift in Allison's work in that originally her material all started to focus on on death and decay and and all of this misery that's coming out. And so I think in a way, Allison's work is sort of trying to capture a very particular sentiment. Now that said... Uh, that said, with that particular, with that context, uh, I do want to get your guys' opinion on what did you think about this book. Uh, so, for context, I didn't finish the book. Uh, I had uh, gotten it this Wednesday, but I found every bit of it compelling, a, a bit ironic. Uh, it kind of reminded me of reading uh, Angela's Ashes in a way because it was just like a, a pretty constant stream of depression, but it, it was also kind of ironic I, I wouldn't even say self-aware that's not for for a non-fiction book as such as this it's you can't just call it, it apply some kind of narrative to it and say like you know oh it's kind of uh kind of light-hearted in any way it's not it's actually rather heavy but it, it's i liked it a lot it, it's a view into a, that sort of um I don't want to say the poor, but but the uh, the un uh, uh, 
the marginalized, I guess, the, the people you don't hear much about. Um, I mean, I listen to a lot of NHK. I listen to a lot of news in general uh, just because I have to. But when you listen to like the state-run media, the NHK, it's typically very uh, um, similarly light in, in that it doesn't like delve too much into you know, uh, uh, what's happening politically in Japan. Like, I've, I frequently recall in the news hearing just about politicians resigning over corruption charges or, you know, uh, the, the consumerism of Japan, like, you know, buying this or that is like a really cool product. And like, look at these people, these Japanese finding success uh, within society. And then having a book like this as a contrast to that is is pretty stark. It's actually stark. <laughs> But 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 I like the book overall, uh, what I've read of it. I plan on finishing it. I, I'll probably finish it sometime this weekend now that I have a weekend to read it. Uh, yeah, I agree with most of that. Um, I think uh, she does take a very anti-capitalist stance in the book, which is interesting when she also talks about how the 80s was a great time. Uh, and now it's not so great because in the eighties uh, we had anymore. lots of capitalism. Like the disaster that gets talked about a lot in the book is the uh, failure of the corporatocracy as such, uh, and how that affects the family. She does talk a lot about various types of people that it did affect, and. Uh, a lot of the time it feels like she only wants to talk about those people. I will say that going into it, I had, I guess, a certain idea of how it would be written. Um, just, I guess, comparing it to one book that I had read, um, Out of Mao's Shadow, um, which the author kind of took himself out of the narrative and put forth just each chapter being um, an, in, an individual story in the, I guess, China's own precarious times. Um, whereas here she does, I would say, insert herself more into it. With, I guess at first, I will say the first couple of chapters were a little more difficult for me to get into since I did want more about her groundwork. Like she's interviewed all these people and I wanted to hear more of their stories, which does, I think, crop up as the book goes on. So I, if, and I guess if I had a criticism, it can be repet, not just repetitive in the sense of, she says, a version of precarity and precarious all the time. I understand why that's, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. the <laughs> thesis of the book. But, you know, she'll define things that have already been defined. How many times we were given the context of who the killer in Akihabara was. I was like, yes, I know. <laughs> I know this one already. I don't know how this was pub. I don't know if she had published... I don't know, individual chapters in certain things, and that's why she had to restate things that are already had been established. But that's, I guess, neither here nor there. Overall, I 
did enjoy it. I think the aspects that I enjoyed most were hearing these stories that I don't think get told enough. I currently work and live in Sendai, which is, of course, part of the Tohoku region. I love Sendai. There's a so beautiful nuclear generator. I guess going there. into oh. it, I also just had um, a connection because of my own concern for you know my students who are in middle school and some of them have already gone off to high school from last year and I guess part of me does wonder you know how do they view their own sense of hope in times like this are you know some of them not worried are some of them more withdrawn so I think reading about both youth like them and then just other people in general um, that's what I really enjoyed from the book. Absolutely. Um, so like everything else you suggested for me, I am learning way more about Japan than I ever thought I wanted to, but it turns out I did. <laughs> uh, uh, so a lot of this was really new to me, but um when I initially saw the title of the book, I suspected he might, she might be drawing from Judith Butler's concept of precarity and precariousness. And I really liked what she did with it. Um, how she tied all these different strand of narrative together through, um, the notion of the differential distribution of precariousness to the populations of, I can't think of a particular example right now. So. We'll get back to it as this progresses, but yeah, I, I really, yeah, I, I enjoy, I, I enjoyed it, and um, <laughs> yeah, right. Um, <laughs> I like reading it. Yeah, okay. I like reading uh, too. So let's okay, let's sort of go through this. Um, let's sort of go through this book, and let's sort of go through the chapters and some of the ideas. I have a few of the key notes, or at least a, a few key words here that uh, I wrote down on the inside cover here. Um, but I think uh, I think probably the easiest way to start is to sort of tackle that word specifically, precarious, uh, precarity, because it, you know, like everybody has pretty much mentioned, um, it, it comes up a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's sort of something really interesting, I think, about that word, which is that there's, she has her own definition to it. Um, she's drawing upon, uh, she's drawing upon Kalberg, I believe, where she says, uh, uh, at its base, precarity refers to conditions of work that are precarious. Precarious work is employment that is uncertain, unpredictable, and risky from the point of the view of the worker. So that's on page six. And then she goes on to say the next page, precarious Japan, a country struck by uh, a radical change in socioeconomic relations in post-post-war times that conveys and gets commonly interpreted as a, na- a national disaster. And so she's definitely drawing upon her background, or at least her familiarity, uh, fam- familiarity in uh, socioeconomic topics to look at that. 
But then she goes on to talk about precarity through other people's lenses. When she references uh, Amami Akeren, for instance, later down, I believe in the sixth or seventh chapter, unfortunately, I wasn't able to mark exactly where it happens. But there is a moment where she asks what Karen believes precarity is. And I believe that particular definition was loneliness. And uh, there was another gentleman there was a gentleman she asks uh i don't remember the first name but the last name was yuasa i was i, I was almost going to say masuki yuasa <laughs> but no that's not the right answer <laughs> um yeah makoto. uh yes makoto yes there we go it was it was an m um <laughs> but uh for for for, for yuasa uh, precarity is a scarcity of Tame. Um, and so there's all of these different definitions of it sort of floating around. And so I guess the question is based upon what this, based upon this book, like what do you think is the, like why do you think Allison goes for all of these defin- different definitions of precarity? Uh, rather than just focusing on one very specific one, because she does set up one very specific one at the beginning, but then it sort of begins to break down a little bit as she sort of brings in all these people. I think the first the first thing that comes to mind for me is that by doing that, that kind of puts the word precarious in a precarious situation. <laughs> Which I don't know if that was her intention at all, but... <laughs> That's kind of the definition, funny. especially with one of precarious. her chapters. I think it's chapter four. She discusses rendering things more metaphorically. So, mm. I guess also considering she goes through the book looking at how different people um, see themselves as being in precarious situations, it only makes sense to then ask them, "Well, what does precarious mean to you?" My, my favorite, just uh, the, the metaphor is always when I think of precarity, I just think of standing on the edge of a cliff. And there are many different aspects of the precarity of standing on the edge of a cliff. Um, and they're mostly just fear of the various things that could happen to you while you're standing on the edge of a cliff. And I think the beginning one, the precariat, uh, gosh, right near the beginning on the page six that you referred to. Uh, as the precarious proletariat of irregular workers of just like uncertainty of your own future. Like um, that, that is essentially it, right? Like you wonder you're going through in your head while you're standing on the cliff, all the various things that can happen to you while you're standing on that edge. Uh, Like you yourself are the cause of like falling over the cliff to your inevitable doom uh, like the cliff could just give out and you just fall over. There, there are like little pictures in my head of uh, just all the things that could happen in that instance. And like, all you can really think about is like what you can do to be assured that those things can't happen. Um, and most of the time when you're in that moment of, of fear, you're, you can't really focus on those aspects. You're just constantly worried that like, you know, oh, well, I could... I could be dead within the next 10 minutes is all is like the entire focus rather than, okay, well, I could just make sure no one's standing behind me to push me off or, 
you know, I could crawl up to the edge. Um, but the one most people don't think about is the possibility of like surviving at the bottom. Like, you know, even if I fall off, would I, would I actually die? Like, you know, that, that's, that's the one that most people don't ever, they rarely test, right? Like, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to be wrong in that instance to say, you know, maybe if I just jump off, I'll be fine. And uh, that's, that's actually, I think the, the most interesting one is like contextualizing how high up you are and like where you're at. And I, uh, as I'm reading through this, this book of like the people in Japan, uh, I, I think immediately of like the cabbage farmer in that first chapter where he, he grew cabbages and then they told him the good news, the cabbages survived. He's like, oh, thank God my cabbages are fine. And then he finds out none of them are edible and he kills himself. Like as if he, he figured he was on that cliff where he was like uncertain if he'd still get to be a cabbage farmer and a single bad crop just made him decide, you know, I'm just going to kill myself here on the cliff instead of finding out, you know, it, if, if I'm going to survive the next 10 minutes. And I think that was the, uh, the, I, I, I don't want to describe it as a madness, but, but the, um, the, just the very uncertainty of the future is, uh, I think, the precariousness that um, is ascribed in the book as a general whole. I think that encapsulates just the entire thing. And, and it, 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 I feel like I'm stating the obvious here, too, because I think that was the very first definition uh, in that page six. Maybe I should just read it aloud. But yeah, that that, that was how... I was reading precariousness, even as it was constantly redefined. Uh, this cliff thing—is this from the book? Uh, uh, that was my own interpretation of just the word precarious before I started the book. Right, I see. Um, I thought that was a really interesting metaphor. Um, so I'm drawing from mostly from Judith Butler's definition. I think the best realization is actually on the bottom page uh, sixty-five. Uh, where she distinguishes between precarity and precariousness. And I feel, and precariousness is something she says is not a condition we enter into, but is a generalizable uh, condition that's coextensive with birth. The fact that we are born, we're always already precarious. Uh, we're already, always <laughs> already sort of on this. We could die at any time. <laughs> uh, in the sense that what it means is we need uh, we cannot survive on our own. We need social, political, material arrangement in order to sustain our very existence. And at any point, at any point, that can be taken away, and we can die as a result of that. Uh, oh, yeah. So, so you have precariousness, which is this existential condition, and she want to. Uh, talk about that in relation to the notion of precarity, which is a political consensus, uh, um, which deals with the uh, distribution of precarity. Jesus, I am not words, God. <laughs> That's okay. Have you broken down? I have no, you're going good there. Yeah, this. 
this happens from time to time. But one of the things that Judith Butler talks about is um, not so much on the general condition of precariousness that uh, defines life, but uh, the frame of recognizability through which this precariousness is recognized by um, by the political formation and and the frames through which we are able to recognize it. And and uh, throughout this book, I'm just seeing. So this is from Butler's book called Frames of War, and I'm seeing various ways that Allison is framing how, um, talking about the kind of frames that may make it particularly difficult to recognize um, precariousness, such as uh, Koizumi's um, self-responsibility, the call for individual responsibility. Uh, well, Isaac, um, can you sort of, um, if it's possible, uh, can you briefly describe what Frames of War is about? Because I'm unfamiliar with that one. Oh, so it deals with framing. Um, it talks about war as uh, it, sort of an attack. Um, War not only destroys people, but it's a it's a certain mode of production. Particularly, it creates uh, precariousness. It creates a certain mode of seeing, a certain mode of perception uh, that may diminish not only only the physical livelihood of the population, but uh, the the uh, their very grievability. It um, consign. Uh, Jesus, how do I talk about this? I should probably. Is it too late to admit that that I'm really not a morning person? And this is not working out well for me. <laughs> I think it's funny. I'm looking through Judith Butler books, and she actually wrote a book called Precarious Life. Yeah, <laughs> Frames of War uh, draw sort is sort of an extension on that book. Which, oh, okay. Uh, Anomia, that, that, which um, Allison does cites directly. And I have no idea where my book And she also uh, talks about Kleinman and relates back to what you're talking about with uh, individual responsibility. I guess what I'm kind of getting from this is not so much, or I guess what I, how I kind of see it is not so much as just a general all lives are precarious per se. But I guess it seems more like there are elements of precarity in everyone's lives. You know, when you mentioned there are different ways of defining precarity and um, Amamiya Karim said for her it was loneliness. That's probably an aspect of her life in particular where she felt a sense of precarity. You know, maybe... Right, right things with your family are okay, or maybe you're doing well in school, but maybe you're in a precarious situation with your friends or some other such thing. I don't know if necessarily just everyone's lives are fully precarious because right. <laughs> there is still that sense of being um, an active participant in one's life. And yes, the book also delves into those who've sort of taken themselves out of being active in a way. But I guess just in terms of how precarity relates to people, um, 
Judith Butler talk, actually talks about the un, uneven distribution of preca- uh, precarity, precariousness among the population. I still can't find my copy of the book, which is weird. Uh, but so there's. You mentioned earlier that example of. Um, I think some at least someone mentioned it. The example of. Uh, Concerning schools and the family structure and how the idea of love in the family thought being thought of as un- unconditional can be withdrawn over something as seemingly mundane as not getting high enough grade, how that can uh, lead to a failure to recognize your um, precariousness by the family. Uh, the way that the family structure served to is one of these institutions that's meant to mitigate the condition of precariousness that afflicts um, your existence, but how that is something that can be withdrawn over reasons. <laughs> so someone else. Yeah, I'm just having to cough right now. I'm only just waking up now. <laughs> I think that she constantly brings the structure of precarity back to the family unit. Do other people agree with that? Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. It does. It's like throughout chapter three to five, it keeps going back. I think that's probably because in the sense of Japan itself, a lot of the people that she's interviewed that find themselves in precarious situations do have an aspect of a disturbed familial life in some way. You know, the, the salary man whose family abandons him when he can't find a job, or the child who can't make the grade or gets bullied and just sort of secludes themselves in the house and the parents are left to not quite know how to handle it. Um a lot of it seems to focus on just home life. I would agree with that. Uh, do, you, do you agree with the concept, though, that the precarity should be tied to family? Mm. Should be tied to family. Mm. Um. Well, I mean, for instance, we were talking about just... Butler, and earlier in the book, uh, and talks about Butler's idea of precarity in, in seeming disagreement uh, and then later in the book she agrees with it and then later again she disagrees with it so I'm not quite sure what her position is on it uh, but she uh, Butler is talking about a sort of a state of existence as such where he's um, basically uh, Alison wants to tie it back to family so I was I was wondering if if that's appropriate. I'm going to say just from the book itself, it's probably not one. I wouldn't 100% tie precarity just to the family because she mentions on a number of occasions people who although they should apply for welfare they don't and you know you know maybe you know they don't want to ask family either or family refuses to help them that's you know neither here nor there but there's still that sense of people not reaching out for help 
Whether or not they could get it or not, I don't know. That's another thing that's up in the air. But if they don't make that first step, they kind of help themselves stay in a precarious situation. You have to still go for it. So there is still a sense of, I think, on the one hand, yes, it can come from family. But on the other hand, you still kind of can have a say in whether something remains precarious. I think the the family unit is so dominant in Allison's analysis. Um, I'm having difficulty seeing it um, as like I'm having difficulty thinking of it as it should be family. But in the context of this book, family is such an integral part to Allison's argument because um, she's, you know, like she flat out states that she's drawing upon uh, Asada Akira and uh, the idea of infantile capitalism. And I think in the second chapter, she then talks about um, Takeo Doi's uh, dependence. And so it might be that to her that the most basic most useful unit of analysis to talk about this precarity is through the family like her whole discussion on um japan inc for instance is how like this the family functions as this as this very lean sort of cog in this vast productive machine and that the mother fulfills a specific role, the students, uh, the the children fulfill a specific role, the 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 father, salary man fulfills a specific role, and it all works together to create this powerful sort of Japanese state. But is that like a should? Um, I can't really say it should, but I do want to concede that I don't think it necessarily. Yeah, I, I'm having difficulty seeing precarity outside of the family lens that she sets up. But nothing is coming at me to convince me it should just be about family. So page 30 has the, where they talk about uh, the family is the place where people live. Kazuku wa hitobito no seikatsu no As the sociologist Yamada Masahiro observed about post-war Japan. Uh, he talk, they talk about this where um, the dynamic is shifting to one where the family is less of a safeguard from risk than risk itself. Subject of his book, Kazoku Toyu Risku. <laughs> My Japanese is horrible. But, Gambare. Yeah. Arigato. Uh, the family <laughs> disarticulates from work and both become riddled by insecurity. The contradiction between the former family system and the current economic system strains the social placeness of family and work. That was kind of what Rito, I think, was getting at, too, at, at his very start when he says, like, this book takes a hard look at um, uh, the uh, culture of work, putting even strains on the family. And then once you put that kind of strain on the family, then the system kind of breaks down. Um, I, that's not what Rita was implying, but he was referring specifically to uh, the capitalist superstructure of the 80s, uh, how like the family was secure, so everyone was secure. But I think 
the precariousness rises from uh, the family suddenly being at risk because of the culture of work is the conclusion I would draw. Um, yeah, that's, that's good. I was also thinking that uh, if you place the importance on the family in terms of precarity, then shouldn't you also be uh, sort of acknowledging that the family also creates precarity, that people's roles as they play them are so defined by family that they end up into precarity because of the family structure that she was wanting to defend or, or uh, idol. Um. Right. Uh, the, the the sort of uh, there there's another <laughs> set of Japanese words where they talk about like uh, the normal oh, nuclear boy. family that I'm not going to try. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I just recall that there was just like uh, there was a sort of definition uh, in Japan of what a normal family, uh, a quote unquote normal family would appear to to have like the qualities of like the family car uh the house um maybe two or three kids that that are uh focused entirely on academic success and it seemed like that precarity uh correct me if i'm wrong is that if if it's if it's lacking any of those qualities if the family is lacking any of those qualities suddenly it it, it like completely breaks down and it's no longer like the, their perception of themselves breaks down. I, am I close? Uh, yeah, well, I think um, Alison would say that um, I might be wrong, that uh, uh, you, know, you, you might attain happiness by, you know, having a family, having a normal life, as, as she refers to it. Uh, but what I... What I uh, I'm thinking about is, you know, for for a lot of lot of people who are in precarity, that's not a realistic situation, uh, and the the social mobility that they may need to not be in a state of precarity may very well not be based on family whatsoever. Um, oh, so I feel like oh, there's okay. a kind of a paradox in a lot of what she's talking about. She does yeah. address that, and uh, there seem to be two things going for the family. On the one hand, it functions as a kind of lifeline. Uh, the abandonment by the family is one form of precariousness, but the family itself is also can also be a source of precar for precarity. Um, so this is on page one fifty six. Uh, according to accounts that four member of the Kowaremono relate to me that day, family caused more wounds than it provided nourishment. So there is the notion of... What was she going on? Um, no worries, yeah. I think she does talk about a lot of situations where the family has created the precarity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she does. But on page 156, um, she does list uh, a really useful example, or at least a series of really useful examples, um, to sort of talk about sort of like what the family, how the family, uh, I think sort of to bolster Rito's point here, is how the family might be a, a, a point or a source of precarity, which is that um, there is an example here, uh, Aiko, uh, Aiko 
uh, grew up uh, being told she was uh, gomi, uh, garbage. Suzuki, that he was a loser. Tsukino, that he had failed. Kako, that he was sick. The sickness they claim as adults is a condition that, if not entirely caused by the familial situation, was certainly provoked and exacerbated by it. So yeah, um, the the paradox, I, I think, definitely does exist there. Um, in that it can be a way to temper it, but also it can magnify it uh, to the point where it literally says at the bottom, um, <laughs> hurling his emotions, Kako shouts at one point, the family should be nuclear bombed. I don't think he said it that way. No, he said it that way. <laughs> the Japanese family should be nuclear bombed. <laughs> yeah. It's a good line. He yeah. repeats it louder for effect. It's true. It, Allison wrote it all in, in all caps to emphasize. <laughs> yeah, this is great. I don't think it's great. It's sad. Well, I mean, I well, kind of feel I like he he's wants... probably referring to how stringent it is, more so than just the death of families in general. He, he, no I one should think... be part of a family ever again. I don't know. <laughs> I don't think he wants to destroy act the actual people in the family, but the, the way that it's structured, the kind of expectations mm. impinging on it, that shapes the kind of structure it eventually mm. become and how that function as a source of pressure point. It's no, I... network. Uh, no, I completely disagree with that. Like, there's no one that understands nuclear bombs better than Japan. And when he says the nuclear family should be bombed, he means it should be wiped from existence. And uh, the way it functions should just no longer exist. I, I don't think he's speaking in hyperbole. You have, to or... you have to bomb the network. You can't just bomb people. You're not going to destroy the family just by destroying a no. few families. No, I'm thinking. I'm talking precisely in terms of what he intended, and you were, you were. Have I you looked at that, that a little. Uh, page yet, Shane? No, I have not. And so this whole page, as I was reading it, was just really shocking to me. Actually, <laughs> yeah, no, oh, so I that's... hadn't read this part yet. <laughs> so you're choosing to take this literally? <laughs> Absolutely. <We could. laughs> yeah, I don't see what's wrong with taking that position. <laughs> Besides <laughs> yeah. the annihilation of the Japanese nuclear family. Well, the nuclear <laughs> bomb doesn't have a good record of destroying whole institutions. But you would agree that it could possibly annihilate entire civilizations. Would you agree with that? Well. Well, I mean, like, I, well, I think, Isaac, the nuclear bomb has destroyed an, an institution pretty cleanly, which is that the idea of the Great War. Okay, fine. Yep. <laughs> no. <laughs> no hyperbole. Anyhow, how, how did we even get to this? Um, Somehow uh, I directed us to 156, and I'm sorry for the rest. So, <laughs> I, I do think that I, I do think that the, this pressure point um, that you mentioned here is really. Um, I didn't. I think we can see this very. The show up really vividly in when we're talking about like say the hikikomori because when oh, you're yeah. looking at say uh michael zielenzieger's book uh shutting out the sun uh or even in uh or even in uh, keiko hirata and mark verschauer's uh the paradox of harmony mm -hmm. um 
you can see how family pressures essentially can sort of sort of choke or at least suffocate um the the children upon whose responsibilities are placed upon them uh, so yeah i do think the family can sort of lead to precarity in such a way well precarity is something that's in children it's more so whether or not the family chooses to recognize this precarity and whether they choose to recognize this precarity is based on the extent their children um, embody the for, for, form of expectation that society tells them what children should look and act like. If they don't map on that, if they um, don't do well in school or other things, they fall outside that. And what seemed to be happening in a lot of these cases is the family refuses to acknowledge their precarity and abandons them sometimes. Hmm. Okay. According to Butler. Well, I guess. Well, Butler doesn't actually talk about the family. It's more so the war, and she talks about war representations uh, and the different distribution of grievability when certain lives are lost compares to other lives. Was there anything else in in chapter one that um, <laughs> that y'all wanted to talk about before we move on to the next chapter? Well, I think the big piece of that, which was not discussed yet, was uh, the tsunami, which is shocking because uh, you know that's that had a huge impact on on public perception, and I think that's not a part we should gloss over is the fact that this uh, this book. Uh, was in a finished state, and then, and then, like as uh, Allison was leaving Japan, uh, the the uh, it, tsunami occurred. And uh, uh, yeah, what page is this? Sorry. Um, well, a lot of the well, book uh, is is uh, is a bit. Um, what's the word? Diaryistic. Sorry, like a diary. Right. Yeah. Um. The. Well, the the tsunami, um, the, the the tsunami ends up having two chapters devoted to it at the end of the book, mm-hmm. which is why I, I I never went over it, and which is why I, I I think that nobody else ended up mentioning it. Right. Okay. Because it's got it's got two chapters at the end devoted to the tsunami and the disaster. Yeah, but importantly, she she points out that that was um, uh, a bit of an. Uh, after after her initial transcript was done that that had occurred and that's that's um it's hard to uh like like when you're reading the book i i think you're thinking of that tsunami having an impact uh just like you read the two chapters that have nothing to do with uh the tsunami chapters that i haven't read yet um it, it's like a new way of looking at it. Like it was written without that context, but the rest of us can't read it without that context. Um, I, I at least found myself thinking about it the, the entire time uh, in chapter two and chapter three, which had nothing to do with the tsunami. There was a part in the first chapter where uh, she said, writing, the, uh, this condition of uncertainty, of rumbling instability the terrain 
muddied by debris, contamination, death, is what Japanese face as their country moves forward in the second decade of the 21st century. Um, in the sense that, isn't that the problem that they're not facing it? Um, a lot of the first chapter just felt a bit mm, almost hagiographic or um, it certainly didn't feel it just felt like it was talking about her sense of the disaster at the time mm -hmm. yeah no I, I was agreeing with you the entire time you were talking I just wasn't saying anything yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Uh, I, there's the, um, uh, my, one of my favorite sentences when, uh, she describes it as an ooze, it, like she was making the metaphor of how the landscape looks following a flood, as well as the, um, kind of, um, conflagration of all the issues all at once, uh, uh, figuratively flowing together as the, the, uh, a mud and ooze. I'm trying to find this sentence because it's great. Uh, no, I can't find it. Uh, well, on ooze, uh, she repeatedly refers to the idea of uh, precarity and the uh, sort of dangers as an oozed stickiness in terms of uh, the relationships that end up deteriorating right do you know of uh do you know of a page in which that might show up because i don't remember the ooze at all yeah i'm finding it still uh yeah uh so here it is page nine uh uh in pre and now post 311 Japan, multiple precarities of work, sociality, of life, and death, as the recent crisis had both, has both exacerbated and exposed, overlap and run together like mud. But that doesn't mean that everyone is situated similarly or affected in the same way. Uh, da, 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 da. It's somewhere in here. Threat of radiation, threat of force, almost everything. So I thought this was the page, but I, I can't find it now. 27, 28, and 60. Okay, seven twenty-eight. Um, uh, Rito, did you say sixty? Uh, yeah, no, I did, but I think I'm wrong. Oh, okay. Hmm, I thought it happened a bit more, but maybe I think I'm wrong. I definitely remember reading it. I didn't have a highlighter. <laughs> I don't remember. Yeah, I, I don't see it. I don't see it highlighted. Oh, uh, the ooze. That, that's on page fifteen. This this crisis 15, okay. oozed mud that literalized a muddiness existing already. <laughs> okay. Uh, all right. Well, here, here's a question I had. Um, some of the previous books that we've looked at uh, have been edited series of essays and so forth. Uh, but this one is in quite a personal style, really. Um, how did that... Uh, did you like that? Did you dislike that? Would you prefer... Just one of your thoughts on the style, everyone. 
No, I, I like that a lot. Uh, the personal view, and then brought, it's like she does take those personal views and then like uh, expounds upon them with like larger, more national stories. Like it, it's a mix of stuff, and and I like that perspective. I think it's, I think it's a good perspective to take. This is my first book club. I don't have a point of comparison. <laughs> <laughs> What about the other books? <laughs> other books. Huh. Well, I assume you've read some books, Isaac. It seems you have. So, um, what did you think of the style of this book? Huh? Uh, well, I liked it. Uh, yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, Cindy? I guess my question will be what is the comparison just a more academic take on the subject? Um, well, the previous books that we've done have dominantly been, well, I think they've all been a series of essays around a theme. Uh, or in the case of the Moe Manifesto and uh, the Anime Machine, there's it's a little bit different, but mostly they've just been these somewhat distanced essays that essentially say here's a topic here are some case studies here's some ideas uh but for Allison uh her monograph here is very experiential in a way um because like she spends in the 6th chapter she spends uh, quite a few pages talking simply about the process of getting to sites for relief. But so, I... Sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, and so it's 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 written differently from the other books we've covered, so I was just wondering how... Uh, so, readers, just wondering, like, how, mm. how you've been taking this sort of type of book. Well, I guess, I mean, it is... It is in itself a different kind of book. It's a book about her field work, so it only makes sense to have that more personalized perspective. And I think it wouldn't be as strong as it is without it if she just cited newspaper articles and didn't talk to anyone herself or didn't experience anything herself. I, I mean, that's the power of experience, you know, the section mm -hmm. where she goes to that. Yep live house and says how powerful the experience is when you have people who have gone through things that the audience has gone through and they're up there saying it and everyone's moved by it. It's a very similar thing. Um, yeah, yeah. She's an uh, anthropologist after all. Yeah. Um, I wasn't uh, you mentioned academic before. I wasn't saying that this isn't um, an academic book at all. I guess when I meant is more just looking at other people's work and then more, it's, I guess, in a more, it's hard to explain what I mean, to be honest with you. I guess when people think of academic work, they don't really necessarily think um, anthropology, although that's very academic, but I think a sense of a distance where she doesn't distance herself. And I, I, knowing the general books that have been, you guys have covered on 
the book club before, they seem to be more about theses and research as a sort of looking at other books and other forms of media as opposed to just directly talking to people going about whatever their daily lives are. I'm not saying that elements of that don't appear in any of those books. I have no idea. But this is heavily what, this book in particular is heavily what that is, I guess. So there's a difference. I don't. I don't. Mm-hmm. There is a difference. I'm not saying this isn't academic, but it's definitely a different kind of academic just because of the nature of what it is of her field and mm-hmm. You know. mm-hmm. because it talks about uh primary research uh primarily instead mm-hmm. of secondary yeah okay mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. would you say it feels a little um i'm blanking on a better word here but perhaps a little journalistic like would it like would this feel like would this book feel like a very long version of what you might find like say in a long form article? Uh, yes, <laughs> for me, yes, I, I would agree with that statement. I'm not even done with it yet, but yes, it feels like an article that uh, is very long form. Uh, it tackles many ideas. Um, but it's still very focused. Like I, I liked that the best. Like it didn't stray off course, you know. Like, <laughs> like I feel like some articles do. Like they they start and then they kind of meander. Like they don't want to draw too many conclusions. And this wasn't afraid to draw many conclusions based on evidence, both um, anecdotal and published. I think it has elements of that, but I like the way that she incorporated all these theories as well. Honestly, that's the part that I was a little more comfortable with. So it's not, but at the same time, um, in terms of it being journalistic, there are elements of that and certainly a case can be made for it. And I feel like this might contribute to why it might be accused of being, it might be accused of being dated in that it does talk about specific interviews and events that happen at a very specific point of time, but um, there are also other ele- other things going for this book as well. And we have to remember, I mean, like, like this book wasn't just written in the years between 2011 and 2013. This was, you know, as she's mentioned, this was originally um, going to be published and then 311 happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah so, the, the main body of the book is from 2008 to 2010. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so it's, it's even older than that. Right. Oh, sh- yeah. Okay. But at the same time, I don't know if it's fair to just say, oh, it's dated, as if nothing in it could still apply or be useful. Um, yeah. yeah, I, I, I uh, made that point in the book channel. Earlier. Yeah, I, I don't think it's dated, but I, I'm just saying that this um, journalistic feel might, uh, is likely to lure that particular charge. I, I don't think it's dated. I, I, I really like what she did with some of the, conce- the concept of precarity, how she used that as a line to tie together all these different um, otherwise, probably otherwise disparate events. 
I think it's, um, I think it's useful as as a lot of works in cultural anthropology are as as snapshots, um, of a particular sentiment in a particular period of time, and that we're supposed to going forward past two thousand thirteen now into two thousand seventeen. Um, sort of consider what elements of it are still there, what elements have changed, sort of what might be missing. Um, and so perhaps maybe did you guys want to go into sort of like the higher concepts and see what's still there, what you might think is still there, or what has been changed in the time span since it was published? Um, sorry, in what sense, Joe? Well, there's a few ideas that she that she's got. You know, some of the things like um, the uh, relationless society. I think it was called the Mu and Shekai, and there is this idea of uh, Japan Inc. Um, and you know, you mentioned one of the really the most important things uh, I think, which is the people who sort of I wouldn't say ignore probably sort of moved on and sort of what that might mean. I, I'm muddling over those words because I don't think like if anything, what disaster does is it makes um, everything that was kind of under the surface rise to the top. And so I think that in a sense, uh, it feels almost as if this was the book that was kind of tackling that stuff that was under the surface. And now we're seeing the rise, the, the same sort of, uh, a filament at the top. One would maybe describe it as an ooze <laughs> rising to the top. And now that now we can like more clearly see it, like, like it's, it's no longer hidden. It's no longer opaque. Um, that kind of the opacity kind of disappears when you really shake a system up. You you, you start to see um, that you can draw conclusions based on the response to that. Uh, it, it's it's in a sense what what I refer to as Monday morning quarterbacking. Like, oh yeah, of course this would happen after the fact. Like like I, I would avoid that kind of view like, like in retrospect it like these things in, in can seem obvious now but i think it's interesting that uh, when allison was approaching these things uh at the time i don't believe they were entirely obvious but now uh, as i'm reading i'm like well of course the the family is you know falling. of course japan is an overworked society you know of course uh, there are uh, a large number of people that are living as a neat that, you know, like not, not actively pursuing employment, education, et cetera. So, so yeah, or training. Uh, so I, I don't think in retrospect, it, it's a good thing to like, say, you know, um, that, that this is, the accepted view of Japan in retrospect. I think instead it's the best view is a pure one uh, of uh, just a, 
approaching it as if these things weren't obvious, like as if, as if, uh, you know, 2011, uh, or March 11th didn't happen yet. Um, I think that is kind of an interesting and provocative way of, uh, examining the text. Um, at least for the chapters where it doesn't talk about the, um, the, the incident, the ones, the ones I haven't read, the chapters I haven't gotten to yet. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think the book was outdated when it was written. Uh, rather that the, the perspective that Allison had at that time was, um, somewhat, um, her, her kishki, her, 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 um, what things looked like from her point of view, uh, physically as well as, um, you know, just looking at various things. Uh, uh, yeah, and in a lot of ways the book feels like that in general as well. It sort of feels like she's, um, she's, uh, making, making a quilt and she, a patchwork quilt and she's taking these different patches to make her quilt in this book. Um, but yeah, no, I don't think there was anything that she was writing about that uh, seemed outdated from when she was writing it. Um, but certainly the context has changed, and I think um, the situation has to change because of many of the issues that is talked about in the book. I disagree. Uh, but I don't think it's it's gone in the the manner at least that the book talks about like um well i certainly don't think that family has been the answer to the the issue of a liquid workforce at the moment uh mm -hmm. the trend has simply continued mm -hmm. uh what trend the just the continuation of the liquid workforce Yes, and, and, um, you know, just a, a forsaking of the idea of, of nucleic families, really. Okay. Uh, and I think that's, um, you know, a lot of that isn't even related to the family structure. It's related to other things, the way that people live their lives. You know, a lot of it is in terms of things which are a bit difficult to talk like, like um, how they live their lives online and stuff like that. Uh, mm -hmm. Oh, actually, I guess that draws into one issue I did have, where she was, uh, on page 91, she talks about this uh, guy who is actually somewhat popular now, but she was um, uh, undermining his opinion, which was based around young people nowadays don't want to live their lives like their parents, pretty much. And he was suggesting some ways in which, uh, you know, the, the zeitgeist of youth was changing and, and what they wanted. Um, but she simply um, discarded that to tie it back to family again, actually, and talked about, um, you know, Capitalism and war, but yeah, I, I simply think that um, the the issues that are pertinent have changed because the issue is 
complex, um, and it simply didn't go as according to some of the situations that she talks about in the book. Well, I think that's um, my my guesses might be because of sort of a little bit because her her cases or at least the her focal points tend to really they tend to favor the older generation a lot because I'm seeing that a lot of her situations, a lot of the situations she talks about favors the elderly. She's got an entire section devoted to the centenarians. Um, and so I'm wondering how well equipped Allison was, or I guess another, another concern would be how often did she actually sort of interact with the younger generation outside of sort of the, the small smattering of people she constantly refers back to. Mm. Like, I don't know exactly how old uh, Amami Akeren is, but it's implied that she's of a younger generation, but how many of these people she actually discussed outside of, outside of the, outside of the circle of people whom are already fitting into her, um, already fitting into sort of the cases she was already looking at, if that makes sense. Mm, yeah. Uh, mm, uh, what is the word for that? Because she does validating. Ring how it seems like a lot of attention is placed on the youth in terms of news that she was able to reference and books she was able to reference. I think her focusing on the elderly was maybe more a chance to spotlight something that is a little more under the radar that just even people in Japan wouldn't necessarily expect there to be a problem with. I don't, I guess I don't know if it was a matter of her not engaging so much with you, but more to emphasize how it's not just, Carrie isn't just for the youth, but even the elderly who you think, well, they should be fine it's towards the end of their life. They should have everything figured out, no problem. And then that just not being the case. Yeah. 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 Um, but when she talks about the internet, I um, that. she talked about it in relation to Furuichi. Uh, referring to his words, and to she um, talked about it with Surumi as, as well, but then she related that back to the concept of hope or something. Um, like the the thing that she talks the most about with the <laughs> internet is internet cafes. Uh, so yeah, I, Wait, I just think the, the the issue um, of connectivity in a social world is very much. Um, the internet comes into that now, uh, and it, it, that didn't really play out in much of the book. And I'm, I'm not blaming her for that or anything like that. It's it's just um, wasn't really um, the focus. And I think the direction is moving in that. Yeah, um, yeah, because that was one of the that was one of the gaps I noticed too. She didn't really talk a lot about. Um, 
online social connections. Um, mm. Most of the social con- uh, most of the social connections she talks about were these enclosed support groups of people whom she went and experienced um, their their plights with, um, and so it's sort of spatially focused. But yeah, there's there's not much mention of online communities in here. Uh, she did mention two channel once. She said that once. she read it. Yes, she did mention that. I remember. <laughs> but it seems like when she does mention internet connections, it seems to be with regard to the only connections these people have are online. It's never. You're right. It's never actually looking at what those connections are. Per se, which is a bit of the gap. I mean, if we're if we're looking, if this is about or it if it heavily focuses on family and uh, precariousness, well, would would social would online relations could online relations temper or substitute for the family that Allison is arguing is sort of missing or decaying? Um, well, I would answer that I definitely think they can. However, um, I would also say that I think um, in such a highly, really overconnected world, that exacerbates uh, the problem that she was talking about in the sense of Moen Shakai. She used the term techno-intimacy at some point. I'm trying to find that. But she was talking about that being something that's uh, used to make up for the lack of intimacy, but in sort of a san- more sanitized, aestheticized way. She doesn't really explore the implication of what she means by that, but I can't find the pages. 101, second paragraph. Um, an intimacy premised on care and built into technology, what I have called elsewhere techno-intimacy. As I discovered in doing field work on Tamagotchi, Pokemon, and other techno-intimacies, this is a play that, while multifaceted and complex, turns on fostering sinews of attachment that burrow into the nervous system, as if humanly interactive, even social. And kids grow up practicing social intimacy with a Tamagotchi or digital companion will become the users of care robotics as they grow old, which will... Uh, be ever more likely alone. Um, it, I don't know if this is completely analogous to no. the internet. Uh, this seems more in like... Fact, I, would, I would actually uh, think that there's a good example of what I meant. I don't think Tamagotchi have right. too much actual bearing on uh, that kind of issue. But using to talk about two channels as well. That's true. I mean, Tamagotchi, not really. And then Pokemon, I mean, that's a game that, yeah, I guess you can interact more so nowadays with people online, you know, trading online, battling online. Mm-hmm. But it's still very much a, hey, let's get together and play with friends, like, at their house or something. It's mm-hmm. not really equivalent. Yeah, I think she was interested in this because of the raising a child aspect, the sort of familial aspect of a, a 
piece mm. of technology, particularly a toy. Mm -hmm. She did write a book on toys or something that I haven't read. Mm. Uh, yeah, I believe that's Millennial Monsters she's referring to. Oh, God. <laughs> As it says, uh, she cites herself from 2006, so yeah, that's that, that should be Millennial Monsters. Millennials are monsters. Um, yeah, because it, it, it then gets followed up by a section which is the nuisance of care, robots and dogs, where she talks about how people are visiting dog or cat cafes uh, purely so that they can experience what it feels like to have a pet, but not actually own a pet because they don't want to. They don't want cost. the the real care that comes with having a pet, which is I'm like sure cleaning you can up the poop. And... A lot about that, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> Let's let's move on. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think I think the techno intimacy is a little different from uh, <sighs> online connections. But I mean, I guess I guess the the follow up question is then. I mean, it's 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 clear that Allison is not trying to show a comprehensive look. Mm -hmm. um, it's very much societal uh, based on her experiences um is she perhaps is she perhaps purposely just not mentioning it uh simply because she looks at an older generation and they might not perhaps be as well equipped to sort of establish these sort of social online connections because remember the the cover the cover is literally two older women and then as she's talking about these relief efforts they're all they tend to be older people i think there was a few younger people but the first story she starts with is about an older gentleman who dies alone wanting to eat a rice ball mm. so there's a very sort of a clear unit she's focusing on. So is that probably intentional that she's not talking about online connections? I don't I, know. I don't think she made a conscious effort to not talk to you. I don't think they represent such mm. a large enough sample that it would be something worth pursuing. Uh, when this, this thing takes pretty broad strokes and frankly, the, even that those online communities um, they're small, and even then, they're they're a smaller facet of of a much larger society. So I don't think there's enough advantage of pursuing them, even as a kind of uh, highlight. Like you know, like you know, well, these these online communities are really good and interesting, but they they I I uh, I wouldn't say they're very well representative of the society as a whole. So one of the concepts she talks about is futurity, particularly a kind of reproductive heteronormative futurity uh, that is, Jesus Christ, it's all over the place, but I can't find a page number, uh, drawing on the Eidelman's concept. And she, one of the condition of precarity is the loss of the sense of being able to envision a future. I don't know, she probably didn't tie that, tie the internet thing into that. Uh, yeah, at one point she said that, you know, precarity strikes uh, on women and 
another party. But, you know, her point was that because uh, women have to raise children, because they're relegated traditionally into not being able to get full-time work, all that sort of thing. So I think that was a definite focus um, in terms of looking at at how women have, have um, lost out in the system. I'm not sure that that quite came across. I don't know if people felt that very strongly. But oh, um, right, she right. does use that term yeah. heteronormative, and I'm, I'm not really sure if, if she, she draws on is... the work of Lee Eidelman, um, who uh, writes who the idea of futurity um, who has coined the term, but she does talk about... When we use the term heteronormative nowadays, we're sort of including the other sort of the whole spectrum in in opposition, right? But um, I, I just think when she's using heteronormative here, she's really just talking about men and women. So rather, a, you know, a patriarchal nature of things. A certain outlook towards future that's meant to replicate a certain image of society. Uh, that's built on the family structure, uh, whereby those who do not fit into this mode are consigned to uh, uh, being called people without a future. Page 117, let's see. 117. Uh, in a dominant culture ordered by reproductive futurism, for example, those who don't, don't biologically reproduce are people without a future. Denied futurity, the present is not enough. It is impoverished and toxic for queers and other people who do not feel the privilege of majoritarian belonging, normative taste, and rational expectations, rather than trying to make a place for oneself as a gay family. For example, within this dominant order, or fleeing it altogether, uh, the position taken by anti-relational queers, Munoz advocates for uh, what he sees as a more hopeful path, envisioning a working for a different kind of collective belonging. So a way of talk um, envisioning a different kind of family structure, but she doesn't quite go into what that might look like. Yeah, yeah I, I just don't think she goes into it. No, no. Uh, but yeah, this is definitely why she keeps on using that word heteronormative, although she is just quoting Reynolds here. Would she even, would she even know what that might look like? Uh, huh. Because I feel like she, she, I feel like she doesn't talk about it simply because she wouldn't even know what it would look like. Well, I think she's suggesting that the structure itself needs to be changed in some way. Uh, yeah. But what it looked like might be a little beyond the scope of her project. Yeah. Because right after that, she then goes on to... Uh, yeah, right after that, she just flat out summarizes... Um, it is the breakdown or liquidization of the relationship between human time and capitalist value at the level of the reproductive family home that marks the form of precarity and unease experienced in post-post-war. Oh my time. god. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> oh, she tries. Oh, wait, hold on. Um, 120. Uh, 120? Well, she 
Okay, she does. Okay, never mind. She still doesn't really talk about it, but at the bottom of the uh, full paragraph here. And we can see Munoz's call for a collective futurity that making a place for those excluded in the here and now also operates as a materialist critique of the heteronormative order that reproduces itself on the basis of only one kind of child. Uh, doesn't really go into that, but... Yes, and, no. and, and uh, in another part she says, Japanese capitalism, the heteronormative romance, family, and home. Oh. Yeah, people outside of the heteronormative spectrum have uh, fully participated in Japanese capitalism, I can assure you, but... Um, well, she, I don't think she's talking about people, but a certain structure that will um, allow them to flourish on their own term as opposed to assimilate within it. Which Yeah, I think she's talking about a reproductive patriarchal family system. This essentially ties to her Japan Inc. argument. The, the, the state and the economy as a sort of corporatist thing where every everybody sort of falls into these very specific roles that allow them to um that essentially ultimately benefits the state in a mm -hmm. very particular way mm -hmm. start of chapter two they actually refer directly to it post-war japan is sometimes nicknamed japan inc for the corporatization of its social economy and the quote marriage between the social factory at home and the post-industrial factory at work that fueled its off-the-charts productivity. Yeah. Let's talk about chapter two. What chapter are we on? <laughs> Moving <now>? on. <laughs> chapter two. We're on chapter two. Uh, page 21. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> All right. So the general idea in chapter two is there is this Japan, Inc., this corporatist salary man structure, and it's sort of decaying as it moves to a liquid Japan as we start to see more and more fritas uh, and uh, Hakken workers. Um, so let's start in Japan, Inc. Uh, I have a lot to say on this, uh, particularly uh, the part where they... Um, uh, gosh, I can't say this name, but it's on page 26 at the very top. Harutunian, 1989, uh, is the quote there. Uh, let me see. Let me find a good place to start. Prime Minister Ohira, Ohira famously announced at a policy meeting in 1980, Japan's economic system is different because it is founded on its unique culture that, unlike Western modernity, modernity privileges the communal values of Idagata. <laughs> Sorry. A survival from traditional culture, this, as Oihara asserted, is what gives Japan its competitive edge, representing an alternative, more, quote, humane and advanced form of capitalism, which I think is ridiculous because it's just um, Japan's own brand of capitalism is unique. I, I'd, I'd omit, I, I'd remi be remiss not to say it's like, uh, the same as any other form of Western capitalism. But uh, it's interesting that he would des describe it as somehow more humane. Um, and so I, I, I struggled to like try to differentiate it. And 
Um, so when I think of inhumane Western capitalism, uh, I think of something pretty near and dear to my heart, which is the Ludlow massacre that happened in Colorado, where the state actually uh, hammered down, like called in the military on its own people to get them to go back to work, back in the coal mines, etc. And that is, I think, a good definition of like what an inhumane capitalism is, where there's a marriage of the state and the economic system which ultimately forces its people to work. Uh, this this was interesting because it resulted in, you know, the eight hour work day, you know, the 40 hour work week, weekend, paid leave, all that, all that like good stuff that is um, enjoyed as a result of that in a Western capitalist system. Whereas there never was an organization of the Japanese workforce against the state, if that makes sense. Uh, I, I don't have a recollection, and it's not covered in this book, of any time, you know, the workers banded together, uh, uh, unionized, and asked for certain rights. Um, that, that in just from my reading of this book, never actually occurred in Japan, uh, post-war, particularly. Um, so I don't see... So I guess the case I'm making is that they can't claim to have a more humane uh, capitalist system when uh, that like sort of rising up or unionization or or call for certain worker rights never really occurred. Um, it, it, and yet this book makes the case that they're overworked and, and calling back to the paradox of harmony, Joe. That other book, I don't want to reference it too much, but it all it made this a, a similar case where it said, you know, they they they're overworked and they do it anyway. Um, it, and it feels kind of sick because later in, in in that chapter, there's the uh, I can't find it here, but there's a an individual that says he belongs um, to the corporation, like he is essentially owned. Um, like his his work and labor is not his own um that uh, yeah i think i know what you're referring to let me see i, I got it highlighted somewhere that was also particularly stark and it, it i'm not sure if it reveals a kind of uh, sickness but it's more like i wouldn't call that healthy that's just again the western perspective like that doesn't seem um humane like as if the <laughs> i suppose that's the communist view that the, the labor's uh work is not his own it is the owner ownership of the state or the corporation the labor is not his own and that uh, as a perspective to me that that didn't seem healthy and i think this book uh does attempt to highlight that as as a as a not good thing <laughs> Um, so the, I think the, the, the section you're thinking of Gene, um, is actually a few pages back. It's on page 23. Oh. Um, it's these jobs in or close to corporate Japan signaled a sense of accomplishment and identification, even with the state. I recall a salary man telling me in the early 1980s about the stretch of long hours of overtime he was then putting in at the office. Sometimes he stayed up all night or slept at his desk. But no, he wasn't getting extra pay, he told me. And no, this didn't even make him resent his company. As he explained to me, the American, naive about Japanese work culture, 
I am doing this for my company and for Japan. The sacrifice, uh, the sacrifice signaled both duty and honor, and was and also was just part of the job. Yeah. So what she emphasizes is the attachment to the job in various settings, being part of yeah. that、uh, Japanese capitalist system,、uh, and she also、uh, talks about the essential lie, basically. In that system, being that a whole lot of the labor that、uh, actually, you know, created the success of the system was、uh, in often unpaid settings、uh, and very much、uh, based on women in the family who would、yes. uh, work in various positions. Uh, yes. Yeah.、Uh, Japan has had. Uh, unions. All right.、Um, yeah. The I think the I think the 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 section on women is very much building upon material that Allison has been writing about for a very long time.、Um, like、uh, Isaac, for Isaac is familiar with, for instance.、Um, is there like a? Does Isaac live by like a? Like a wood chipper. I think that was the accursed chair. <laughs> um, <laughs> the accursed chair. Um, but yeah, there's a like Allison, for instance, talks about the the the, the role the bento box plays, for instance,、uh, and sort of the mother's role in that. And this is this whole section, I believe, starting from chapter twenty. Six or well, definitely it crescendos around chap、uh, not chapter.、Uh, it crescendos around page twenty six.、Um, it's a very Althusserian a、uh, perspective, I would say. What's that word、um, mean? I'm sorry. What does that word mean? Oh, it's just、um, it's just a reference to Louise Althusser. Okay.、Um, and <laughs> so. Alright. So the mother、uh, is essentially there's the mother is sort of interpolated, not sort of she is she,、uh, the mother is interpolated into the sort of interpolated essentially this interpolated yeah ah、oh. um into the sort of I don't want to say machine but、uh, a, a sort of a good state subject that grooms and. Sort of that grooms and cultivates、uh, the new generation.、Um, she says, "Let's see here. Women gain recognition for producing children who achieved high academic performances by demonstrating extraordinary output and discipline, even as toddlers. But for the education mama, this was a full-time job that seeped into everything from the lunch boxes sent to school to the games played before bed." And yeah, this is chapter.、Uh, this is page twenty six. I gotta stop saying chapter.、Uh, this is page twenty six. 
Routine caregiving became embedded with the second nature, using and embellishing everyday rituals as a means to extract and reward output. Because a woman's identity and social capital merged with that of a husband, but also that of a child, mothers worked hard at love. If she succeeded, measured by how well a child did at every stage along the life course, a woman gained recognition. If the child failed, a mother was held accountable. Um, and yeah, she, she of course talks about family, uh, and mothering and so forth. But, I mean, also, you know, um, the jobs that women would do, often very lowly paid or unpaid, include stuff like, um, you know, nightlife of all sorts, you know, bars, restaurants, whatever, uh, and stuff like, uh, factories, particularly food, uh, Helping with the neighborhood association in various ways, uh, uh, shops of all kinds, you know, particularly related to food again, those sorts of things. Right. And so I think when we're looking at, um, like, uh, you guys mentioned, um, the sort of the heteronormative structure i think not simply just the not simply just a man and a woman but i think that we can see it here in the context that it has a tendency to expect people to be subjected to very specific positions and falling outside of that um they are no longer good subjects for the state and they aren't punished that way right they're just their role has changed. They're just uh, relegated to a uh, lower social stature. Well, I don't think it's as simple as that if you're talking... Well, what are you talking about there? Outside of heteronormativity? Outside of heteronormativity. Like, like if, if you're not um, affixed to uh, that that way that is defined as um, I don't want to say like peak performance, but uh, essential, uh, an essential worker, um, the definition of that, uh, then you're relegated elsewhere. Um, I, I, maybe I'm reading this completely wrong, but that's my understanding of it. Uh, right. Well, yeah. Um, all right. Well, briefly, um, Trans people have had varying success in the Japanese system. Uh, gay people uh, haven't had as bad a time as other countries in general. Like, obviously, it depends on context, but um, lesbians in particular have a pretty bad time. There was also this shortage of elder care that was towards the end of the chapter, so I'm kind of jumping around. Uh, it's actually accidentally lost it care deficit on page 40 thank you uh wait what page 40 uh 40 okay so i also wanted to talk about the care deficit which is that um i i, I was actually always under the impression that there was a, a very um uh rigorous uh social welfare system in place for the care of the elderly, um, 
and uh, there's there's this kind of shocking story uh, on the page forty two where uh, Shimomura um, left her home, uh, went to the World Cup, uh, went to out to sea at Kobe, and uh, basically neglected her children. I think because she felt. Um, I don't know how she felt, but essentially she was caring for these children. Um, she was single. Let me make sure I'm reading this correct because I don't want to get this wrong. Mm. I think she was single, yeah. Two children of a single mother who actually mm. takes to keep kids alive. Okay, yes, I do have it right. Uh, raised by her father. Yeah, we, I, I could read some of this aloud. After her mother left, she and her sister grew up largely alone. Their father worked long hours. I was as a rugby coach at high school, and Shimomura often stayed away as a teenager when, as the paper reported, she also started smoking and dyeing her hair. So, basically, she was struggling on her own. Uh, there wasn't any kind of... She didn't really have a fallback plan. There was no safety net for her to rely on. She was basically on her own, and so her, she resolved basically to just uh, leave him, essentially. That was a pretty disturbing uh, anecdote. It wasn't an anecdote. It appears she's actually quoting a newspaper there. She, it wasn't like she talked to this. Huh. She talked to Shimomura. Um, and then it's uh, also contrasted with the tale of uh, Shimizu Yukiko. Like, immediately after that. This is still page 42. Um, uh, exhausted from taking care of her invalid mother, attempted to kill her mother and herself in a would-be double suicide. And uh, it goes into some of the, the how weird it was that they went to the grave of her father to carry this out. Uh, and she actually failed to kill her mother. Her mother survived, if only barely. Um, it, it just seems like, do they not know of a social welfare system that they could have fallen back on or did it simply not exist? And I didn't see, let me make sure that there wasn't, I, I, I didn't see it any further on this same page about like, you know, of any kind of social welfare system, like, like, or at least a fallback on say family, that sort of support system didn't exist. Uh, that, that was, that subverted my uh, already existing views of, of uh, social welfare in Japan, basically. And, and I was wondering if anyone had any thoughts on that. Right. Well, um, one of the primary reasons for that, right, is because young people don't want to care for their grandparents anymore. And mm -hmm. larger family units are not coexisting in the same premises anymore. So that uh, mm -hmm. puts stress on the older people to live by themselves. Uh, mm. there, there is, you know, a social system, of course, um, but it's not, it's not, <laughs> certainly not perfect. Uh, for instance, it's quite a common thing, right? Um, every, every year you'll get, uh, older people, particularly in Hokkaido, committing petty crimes so that they can be in prison for the winter. Yep. Yeah, there was um, there was an article on Japan Times a few years ago, where it said um, for the first time elderly crime rates um, 
uh, are higher than teenage crime rates. Uh, that that's not actually um, there's there's a normal thing, like uh, uh, relying on the criminal in, justice in, in developed system for worlds, social welfare. In 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 developed countries, it's normally the elderly that shoplift more than the young. Hmm. Well, that's really interesting. Yeah, it is. Is there a reason why that's the case? Well, why, life why not? in jail is better than life in a home, I guess. Or, or spending time in jail, I should say, no matter how temporary. Oh, well, no, no. I wasn't talking about uh, entering jail. I just mean um, petty theft is, is more common. Uh, there's oh, a whole okay. lot of reasons for that. Goes back to uh, people preferring to just kill themselves on the cliff than like reaching that point of desperation is just too much. Um, that that's that's shocking to me. Uh, but yeah, uh, later on, uh, later on, Gene uh, Allison talks about um, how uh, the state has this, or I don't remember if it's the state or if it's a broader cultural thing, but there is this expectation that families are to take care of their elderly. Okay, and so. Yeah, my 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 guess is that the uh, the support structure, the state provided support structure, might not be as robust as we think it is. Okay. Yeah. And yeah, yeah and those subsidies the... or you know um, care uh, homes or whatever, they do exist, but um, just as in most places, there's it doesn't always work, and many people don't use them. Yeah. Although, okay, like, um, re- reading that section, um, where she was talking about that instance, uh, it did kind of, um, cause she mentioned medication, right? And, well, I, you know, I, I have a friend in Hokkaido, um, a housewife as such, uh, and, you know, her, her husband is, has major, uh, problems with his, uh, you know, gastro, uh, and she, uh, has pretty bad arthritis, and, you know, it's just at a stage where she's having to cut pills in half. She, she doesn't have the money or the resources to do anything. But there's probably a lot of parts in this book where you thought of something that was quite personal, probably. Right. Right. No. Right. Am I the only one? No, no. You're what? like. What <laughs> the do you mean? Not even like with my own Western lens. Do I know of anyone like that? Like, not even here, or even in Japan. I even know people in Japan, and that's that's not. Something I've ever heard of. Oh, really? Because I, I mean, I know people in America who are cutting pills in half. But oh well, introduce me to them. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know about Isaac, but I'm Canadian, so I don't really. Yeah, social uh, have this problem. Socialized healthcare, yeah. Oof. Oh yeah. <laughs> I just walk into a hospital. They fix me up, and then I walk out. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Japan also has a national health care system, but 
I mean, in terms of paying for medication, I don't really know how that works, per se. Yeah, basically, the problem... Pro, uh, what was I even saying? The problem uh, is limits, basically. Like there's a certain cap. Mm. Mm, and, okay. you know, your part payments start to get okay. bigger and so forth. Mm. Mm. So, all right, let's move on to chapter three, Poverty, Precarity, Youth. I'm going to be honest, I don't remember this chapter very well. <laughs> I I think it makes a lot of uh, callbacks to uh, Japan's disposable workers. Ah, um, uh, okay. Is this a chapter with the uh, with the comedian who grew up in a who spent his middle school years? Okay, which she later yep. casts aspersion to as per whether that's even genuine. I always remember. I always thought the um, the the point that she was trying to emphasize with that whole scenario wasn't so much of the veracity of the claims, but rather that the claims themselves became so popular, so it might be capturing some sort of social malaise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely, sorry. I think the um, part one is in chapter four. Is it? Mm -hmm. Oh, no. Oh, yes. <laughs> 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 chapter three? I don't remember this chapter. <laughs> she goes to the... um. Moyoi? Is that the name of uh, it? Moyoi? Oh, please. Please. Uh, oh, okay, okay. Uh, page 55. Moyai? Mo yeah, I, I don't know how to pronounce that. M-O-Y-A-I. Yeah, Moyai. Okay. Uh, the word Moyai uh, refers to ropes that are used to tie a boat together. And Moyai and it's not what I know it as. <laughs> what do you know? <laughs> yeah, I think Chai knows exactly what, so we're fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, identifies itself as an independent life support center, a center that gives support to people so that. Uh, so they can lead or help jumpstart an independent life. Um, on the cover of the pamphlet, the byline reads, In order to live inside connectedness. Is this chapter about young people trying to find connection? Well, it's an That's unemployment apartment. agency that and helps then, people in severe need. Yeah. Yes. And then it goes into the part about war is hope killing as protest, which... The um, the I'm comedian ahead. is here. Uh, the comedian uh, Chihara, uh, Chihara Jr. Okay. That's the end of it. Wait, hold on. I mean, it also goes into when she's just sitting in on different conferences happening at Moyai. Was there anything in particular in this chapter that anybody wanted to discuss or address? To be perfectly honest, I uh, all of it. Uh, I don't really feel like the chapters. Um, they all sort of just blurred together to me. Yeah, I'm kind of having difficulty remembering what stood out to me in this chapter. 
For me, the, it is the part about war's hope killing his protest. Uh, and it's at the very start of it, page 59. Um, okay. So uh, it talks about Akagi, which, you know, I couldn't help but think of the anime, but the, uh, you really have to disconnect the two because his life is completely different. Uh, so Akagi despaired of ever becoming unstuck from his dead-end job and the home he had grown up since in since being a child. Looking to have supportive parents, he nevertheless worried that they were aging, fearing his circumstances could get even worse after they died. And yet all he heard from society around him was, get a job and life will be fine. So, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I should continue on. But where are these jobs that uh, society speaks of, Akagi lamented, and... Why are the Furita criticized for being too weak-willed and lazy to get better jobs? In truth, there are few opportunities for young adults who miss the chance to secure regular employment right out of school. And this was, like, just this particular part, obviously it gets into the actual part of killing its protest. But um, that beginning is something I, I, uh, I've, I felt a lot like the same societal pressures in, in America. And this was... You know, a common thread of like everyone I've ever talked to is just, you know, get a job and, you know, life will sort of sort itself out after that. Um, and then obviously that they find it, it doesn't quite work out that way. So, I mean, that's sort of social pressure. I, I don't know if that's a normal. I don't think it's something that... Um, people should strive to do is just strive to work. And then, you know, after that, their life will somehow magically improve from wherever they're at. Um, it's tied to one of the earlier points that was made um, concerning how the outlook towards getting a job, it's not so much that, uh, well, the sense that the company owns you, that your identity very much depends on work. So given that, uh, the pressure that really compounds on the pressure to get a job if um, the way that the system is set up is that uh, you're supposed to derive your identity from work. Right. And mm, so yeah. Um, but further than that, um, it's that even if you do work, the situations in which you were brought into that, like you may not then be able to get good work. Um, no. Uh, you know, the, the, the good jobs as, as such don't exist for everybody. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and that's what, that was, that's what brings me to the next part of this, uh, page 61, where he, uh, he essentially starts looking at joining the military. And that was... Again, this is the same thing happens in the West, actually, where uh, I knew a lot of people in high school that, you know, they, they didn't uh, make it into college. They weren't qualified. Uh, they couldn't find a job right out of high school. So the thing they do is they jump right into the military. Um, I, I thought this was a particularly particular place where the West and, and Japan kind of share uh, a lot in common, but the West has the luxury of being allowed to support a military that can go overseas, uh, while Japan is uh, the self-defense force. The United States West, that wages all sorts of wars over 
whatever, basically. I mean, fill in the blank. Uh, ideological wars, uh, economic ones. Um, uh, so it's stateside. Stateside, yes. Uh, no, not stateside. Actually, like, like I mean, the the United States wages wars overseas. Like, it, it, am I understanding you correctly? I, I mean, Japan doesn't have that luxury of you know just going overseas and and uh, you know uh, destabilizing a government. That imperial Japan doesn't exist anymore. Uh, it's it's almost as if they should be allowed to. Uh, use their self-defense forces overseas. And this was something I think Abe actually pursued recently was uh, being allowed to station troops in South Korea or, uh, or, or assisting an ally. I think it's specific. The specific language he used was that, you know, if, if another nation finds itself in conflict, they would be allowed to deploy forces in defense of that ally. Um, and that was extremely controversial uh, people had apparently um, seen that as a return to Imperial Japan. Uh, it was deeply concerning politically. Uh, but frankly, from here in the West, I didn't see a problem with it. Like, I, I would, I, I mean, it's, I wouldn't see a force from Japan if suddenly the United States or Canada or, or anywhere, any of our allies, Australia, were suddenly invaded by a foreign force that uh, Japan, as a retaliatory Measure Australia's standing army is less than half the size of Japan's. It it would be um it wouldn't be problematic uh, politically in the international sphere for them to do that, but domestically it was faced with a lot of resistance. And especially since you know those friends that did join the military, they were deployed in places like Iraq, Afghanistan, um, uh. <laughs> the Middle East, essentially, uh, very dangerous places. And uh, when their time was up, when their, uh, you know, their time, uh, when their deployment was over and, you know, they, they survived, they came back and, and were able to find, you know, uh, uh, employment, I guess is the word I was calling for. But more importantly, they actually went on to be entrepreneurs as well. They used all that money they got from the military to invest in, their own business, which, I mean, I wouldn't call it successful yet. It's very much a work in progress. But the point is that, that you know, they, they came back and found domestic success as well after serving in the military. So I, I would want that for a Japanese citizen that pursued that, that kind of lifestyle. Um, uh, I, I think uh, this, basically, I'm contrasting that kind of fear of a return to militarism. This book actually does like make the claim that this is somehow similar to Germany nationalism and, and the rise of the Nazi party as well as other things. But uh, it's, uh, I guess it's American exceptionalism. Well, she does though, like in that same page, 61. Yeah, she does. Uh, oh, wait. Yeah. I totally <laughs> disagree with that conclusion as well, though. Um, uh, as you also noted, the evening of the poverty and war discussion, recruitment of the GTI self-defense forces is up, a trend only too familiar from Nazi Germany, Britain in 1941, and history elsewhere. Uh, I, oh. I, I, oh, she okay. does relate that to economic insecurity, which I agree with. That's that's a thing uh, where, like, you know, you, if, if you're facing economic insecurity, join the military. But, Wait, sorry, um, that was and, um, 61? 
61. I don't, yep. right. I don't, I wouldn't make the connection to like some sort of hyper nationalist, uh, rise of fascism, basically. Uh, but I guess that's kind of my American exceptionalism. Um, but one of the things the she talks about is this, is this notion of paranoid nationalism. Uh, so this is on page 62 in the middle of the page. Um, there's also in gender what H calls paranoid uh, nationalism. When feeling excluded from from nation or community, one attempts sometimes to violently to exclude others as well. Now, the way that Allison framed this chapter was through the, uh, she began with Judith Butler quote, war is a production of precarity. When you go to war, one of the first things you have to do is to disavow the precarity of the people you're about to kill, that these people somehow do not matter, that they're just a means for me to gain economic stability, that the loss of these lives are not really lives that are lost. They're just an extension of the enemy's armament. Mm. I don't really know if this ties in with the idea of Nazism, but... Um, Paranoid nationalism. I mean... I mean, with what you were saying, it, it certainly would conflict, number one, with J Japan's... Something that they take pride in is that they don't have that active military, so they do see themselves as a peaceful country because of that. Whether that's a comp more complicated image, that most certainly is, but... Yeah, we're saying growing militarism. Image of yeah. themselves. Which is exactly what is being talked about here. We are seeing growing two, militarism. Sorry, go on. Um, while I'm sure there have been plenty of people who have come back from um, places like Afghanistan or wherever in the American military and gone on to be very successful, that's not always the case either. Um, I know someone who was deployed to Okinawa, of all places. Nothing really. It's not like there's a war being fought in Okinawa, like there is in the Middle East, per se. And then when he returned, he couldn't get that guarantee of having um, his secondary education, his um, college education paid for. For some reason, that wasn't applicable to him because of something that happened. So what did he do? Um, now he works at a gas station, you know, in one of the stores, somewhat like a convenience store that a number of the people in this book find themselves working at. And he can get by, um, but I wouldn't say that he isn't in a precarious situation himself. Well, yeah, indeed. 10% uh, of veterans in USA end up homeless, and there's so many that shoot their wives and all that stuff. But I'd, that wasn't what she was talking about. She wasn't talking about US. No, I was responding yeah, I, to yeah, I my comments. Yeah, Rito. Mm -hmm. As was but I. no, I, I agree with that, though. I, I, that it's, it's not always the case. Yeah. And I do have friends that, that similarly did not find any kind of, like, a re, uh, what do they call that, like, entering back into society um yeah it's it's hard it's a hard transition to make and and most don't succeed uh, uh, well i wouldn't say most but there are certainly um uh stories of for every success story there's one where 
one finds a lack of success of reintegrating into society. And, and, I, and that's, that's a national problem. It's a very different problem uh, than that in Japan. But it's, you know, it's... Right, I was trying to find the similarities, basically. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's it's not none of it is very good. None of not all it's 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 never as clean cut as we would like. No, it's very precarious indeed. Yeah, yeah, and just the USA is not the West. Oh, we're not. What are we? You're not the no, what West. I think what he means is when one talks oh, okay. about the West, you're not just talking about America. You're talking about. Like most of Europe, I imagine. Oh, and Canada and my bad, South America. Oh, I thought I thought Gene was being coy for a second there. Uh, sorry, <laughs> sorry, sorry. You're all right. So it's past the two hour mark. I think we should linger on for about fifteen more minutes. But uh, we're only on chapter three. <laughs> I, know. So I guess at this know. point it should just be whatever people wanted to talk which I mean in the beginning we jumped around yeah and didn't just stick to ch- we didn't really stick to chapter one I'd argue like as as Rito mentioned um usefully uh usefully this book is it's chapters are pr- pretty fluid it's very easy to jump around. Um, yeah, so, um, I was going to say, this chapter, chapter three, is the one where it basically sets up the whole kind of premise of, builds up the whole premise of precarity and what she's talking about in more detail. And because that's so integral to all of the books, that's why it may feel a bit... Yeah, and um, Jane, she d- there's there's no mention of fascism. No, there isn't. I, I inserted that word. She did say Nazi Germany, which I equated to fascism. Well, fascism is the state making a decision that is at the cost of some members of society. Like, the state taking decisions which it sees to be for the betterment of society. It's putting the responsibility out of people's hands, as such, into the state's hand. That's what fascism is. Thank you. Although, no, I, I guess I agree with you, Jane, in that I think she's just too ideological at many points in this book. Uh, well, I think she'd call herself a progressive, and she doesn't really hide it. She's very engaged with all of the topics, and she doesn't want to talk about conflicting theories or ideas. She borrows terms from other people and say, look at this, but she doesn't talk about things that might she may not agree with and say why they're wrong or anything like that. Uh, the two examples I can think of where she does do that is Fukusaku and uh, Koizumi. And with Fukusaku, she just says, oh, well, he, he was um, suggesting war, so that's... Sorry, uh, Furuichi. So that's not good. I was wondering. Yeah, sorry. Uh, so that's not good because he's suggesting war. And with Koizumi, she was just saying, well, he's being classist. Like, oh, you can yeah. even tell that she's just actively angry there. <laughs> yeah, there are actually quite a few mentions of Koizumi in this book, but um, she oh. never really sort of clarifies sort of what about the 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 mid two thousand reforms <sighs> that particularly affected these people. Um, she simply just said it's a result of Koizumi's reforms. It's right. a result of the neoliberal reforms. Right. Right. Um. 
I, I do wish that she specifically mentioned how this sort of this causal relationship she's talking about. Yeah, page 10, even, she talks about the neoliberalism thing, which is interesting because wasn't the 1980s quite neoliberal? Uh, yeah, I think that one was broadly speaking neoliberalism. Because there's a reference to neoliberalism, but I don't think it was just Japan specifically. I think she was just talking about... Yeah, which is, again, just like that ideologicalism here. If it, it, I can't find it in chapter one, but I do have it on page 38 in chapter two. Under a massive deregulation and restructuring platform, then Prime Minister Koizumi instituted further cuts in 2002 uh, as it relates to health premiums and Social Security and pension installments. By drastically slashing Social Security spending, 70% of which is expended on the elderly, and putting a cap on how much the spending could increase each year. This marked the beginning of a new era in Japan, Iryo Hokai, the fall of the healthcare system. That's not quite neoliberalism, but or she doesn't specifically quote neoliberalism there, but um, she at least talks specifically about policies uh, enacted by Koizumi. Well, she quite literally calls it a neoliberal restructuring platform. Yeah, I, I'm not finding that, but I, I do recall that that was said. Um, yeah, that was... Um... It's at page 27. It's right. It's the second paragraph, last sentence. Um, and until it was dismantled by the neoliberal restructuring platform of Koizumi in 2001 as an obstacle to economic reform, its embrace has been seen as critical to the country's post-war success and its Japanese-style capitalism. So yeah, aside from where you mentioned, that specific one you mentioned, Gene, a lot of the mentions of the neoliberal reforms are... They feel referential mm. in the context that she says, you know, the neoliberal reform happens here, here, here. This changes it. And then she moves on to sort of very specific people. Right. And so, yeah, I, I do I do agree in that with, with Rito in that she does come in with a very specific lens and that things that sort of fall outside of that she doesn't spend as much time on or she sort of casts it not casts it aside but really um yeah absolutely it's incidental i guess yeah i guess yeah there was a really interesting one where she mentioned koizumi which i didn't even know uh, which I didn't even know happened, but it was really grim. Um, which is, uh, if we're going to be jumping around at one page 147, it's at the top of that page, where they were talking uh, about the the young the, the young Japanese who have become hostages in Iraq. Uh, the, oh, yeah. The aid workers. I remember that story. Yeah, it's uh, the yeah. two guys captured by ISIS, and um, and then they're beheaded, or they were threatened to be beheaded. Please break it down. I, um, I'll, I'll so I'll just read the the, the situation. There were essentially two aid. I, I think they were rescued um, or returned. I don't remember exactly what happened, but I remember they were returns. But uh, I'll just. So it's at page 146 to 147. Having, uh, so 
having traveled there in connection to the war, um, the three, two aid workers, one uh, one photojournalist, and all of them Furita, were captured by insurgents in April 2004 who demanded that the Japanese government withdraw all 550 of its troops and funds allocated to the U.S. invasion to secure the release. Prime Minister Koizumi refused to negotiate with the insurgents, <laughs> and, an official spokesman, uh, and an official spokesman denounced the hostages for irresponsibly causing Japan so much trouble. Just as their beheading appeared imminent, a high-ranking official of the foreign ministry scolded the hostages at a press conference, claiming that because they had forsaken the basic principle of self-responsibility, the government similarly had to deny responsibility for them. While the three were eventually released, (laughs) they returned to a barrage of public scorn at home. Signs saying, you got what you deserved, greeted them at the airport, and the government billed them for their airfare back to Japan. Oh my uh, god. Harassed by hostility <laughs> and hate mail once back home, the three experienced more trauma in the treatment given to them by fellow Japanese, according to the psychiatrists treating them, than the abduction they'd endured on foreign soil. Oh my god. Wow. Pretty rough. That's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> I would mention, though, that um, in you know 2015, Kenji Goto was beheaded, and uh, no one was happy about that. Right, that's what I was thinking of, actually. Hey, that is a different story. Uh, and I would also then mention that um, there was a whole lot of online activity commentary uh, about the situation. Uh, yeah, most, I remember that. Yeah. Like, in particular, it was more like a, a festival of the event and making fun of ISIS. They did. Uh, they turned, They were, like, tweeting at them, like, all these, like, dispassionate things, like, like almost like taunting them, I would even say. Yes, absolutely taunting them. Um, so, yeah, I, I think there's a... a bit more of a complex situation, but it's a good um, illustration of, uh, <laughs> as quoted <laughs> the, the second in Ch- uh, Chico, uh, yeah, basic principle of self-responsibility. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <sighs> Oh, okay. <sighs> that about sums sums that up. Yeah, no, that's 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 interesting. <laughs> Sorry, I was actually like shocked by all of that. Um, I, I was uh, admittedly laughing. I guess in the same way that it's um, this is kind of what I was talking about at the start. How it's a bit like Angela's ashes. Like all these extraordinarily horrible things happen and it's it's just it's almost so shocking that it's it's actually kind of funny i don't know if that's just like a cultural difference uh, either way it's it, it's it's how uh, i've been responding to most of the stories in this book that they're just almost so atrocious and inconceivable that um all right i just can't help but kind of laugh at it, it it's at uh, Maybe it's my own sickness that I should probably like, you know, take a deep look in the mirror and be like, how could I laugh at these things? 
it, it bothers me just as much as anyone else. Like, you know, when the laughing subsides, the, the kind of sadness sets in. So, yeah, it, it's very much like reading Angela's Ashes, this entire book. I don't know Angela's Ashes, I'm afraid. I'd recommend it. <laughs> uh, it is part you know of what I like it. about I the book. Um, I'm not sure we've talked much about what we like about the book. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry if I, if I haven't. But um, in that... Uh, you know, she brings up all these different stories uh, that happened as she was around, and you know all these contemporaneous events as she experienced them. Uh, and I, you know, I, I enjoyed seeing those at least in that. Um, I was, it was almost like a checklist of, oh yeah, I remember that too, stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, and these are pertinent issues to precarious Japan. It's just like a checklist of precarious Japan things. So mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. I think the book really mm -hmm. uh, achieved its aim of, of illustrating all the different issues. <laughs> or or rather, illustrating the different events instead of issues. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think illustration is a really good way to describe this book, because I think this book, in some ways is a really good complement to uh, Hirata and Verschauer's The Paradox of Harmony, um, because Isaac and Jean, you've both yes. read the book, I know that. Um, it's a The Paradox of Harmony is at times a little abstract. It can be a little sort of broad at moments, mm -hmm. um, where it simply says, well, these are the pressures that these people might feel, and you know, this is how it might... And it, it, it sort of has that pace until it literally gets to the chapter on Fukushima, then it... It's business, goes, yeah. Then then it gets business. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but you can see how, like, some of the ideas and some of the concerns that Hirata and Verschauer bring up, how they're literally made manifest in some of the cases that Allison talks about here. Yeah, the, Allison's um, book definitely gave a lot more concrete examples than uh, than Paradox of Harmony. Like the biggest chapter I had a problem with in Paradox of Harmony was that one where uh, they talk about the the vegetarian uh, youths of uh, Japan. Uh, you know the one where it talks about how because these guys are essentially becoming wimps they're seeing of a blurring of the lines and oh, the okay, genders. Yeah. yeah. That one yeah. I had a lot of problems with just, it was making a lot of sweeping broad generalizations about a guy that was sitting in front of a cafe eating, you're drinking coffee essentially. Uh, but yeah, it, it, this, this book has a lot more of the hard, uh, hard stories that I felt would have improved, uh, the, um, the, uh, Japan and the, uh, the paradox of harmony. Um, but yeah, no, absolutely. The strongest part of that book was the part over Fukushima. Absolutely. Uh, I do wish, um, you know, say that, uh, that sometimes, uh, you know, some of the examples had, um, uh, uh, citations. <laughs> Like, actually, all right, um, the top example of that is where she talked about um, the guy related to train guy, uh, Densha Otaku, or or whatever. Densha Otoko? 
Yeah, thank you. But um, she, she referenced that people had put signs outside bookstores uh, saying that no real otaku... Uh, sorry, real otaku don't go for 3D women, basically. Uh, um, and I would really like yeah. a citation for that because I'd really like to see those signs. <laughs> I I feel like that's something that uh, Toru Honda said. That sounds like something he would say. The first instance was absolutely the cabbage farmer. Yeah, I think I think he was he he is the one that mentioned that that she was talking to him. Yeah, it would have been nice to at least like see like pictures of signs or a. Like referencing an article or something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had a problem with that part. Oh, uh, yeah, page 96. The quote being, Real otaku don't desire 3D women. Honda's fans planted signs saying, Real. Okay, yeah. Oh, oh shit, it was Toru Honda. <laughs> um, <laughs> like clockwork. Uh. <laughs> oh, and yeah, Jesus, that bit next where she talks about the maid cafe with with Galbraith. <laughs> that was pretty, pretty good. Yeah, wow, I, I'm really missing out. This is actually, uh, this is great. I actually really want to read this part now. Yeah, she basically says so. Uh, so Galbraith <laughs> took me to the cafe and said that people form an attachment to the place like a like a home. But everybody seemed alone. There was only one family. That's what she said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh Lord. I just imagine I just imagine like Patrick Galbraith just taking her there and he's just like super pumped and super hyped about it and she's just sitting there with like with arms crossed. <laughs> Oh no. oh no! Yeah, and she even insults the food. <laughs> Same page? Oh no! Uh, what's it, 96 you said, right? Uh, that's on 97 to 98. 97? Okay. The food is not exactly what the customers come for, but it is a medium. <laughs> oh god! Sorry, sorry. Uh, I, I I really want to finish this book, Joe. Rather than exquisite preparation, it is the service that counts. <laughs> oh no! Oh, I feel. I feel bad for uh, Patrick Godfrey. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> he just invites her to his place. <laughs> and then she kind of... <laughs> oh, God. She Your home isn't like... real, Patrick. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> she kind of just leaves a bad... Just like, kind of like a bad Yelp review in her book about this man cafe takes her to... <laughs> Okay. Yeah, so it's definitely an enjoyable book. (laughs) Yeah. Joe, there is literally like 10 minutes of me laughing on this. 
Okay. That, that's fine. Yeah. We'll, 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 we'll take care of it in post. Oh! oh I, I remembered oh, what we were cool. discussing before Nazis. Um, yeah. Uh, I was going to mention that I, I linked the video uh, that uh, she did uh, reference. I can't remember when. Uh, 2000 and NHK, NHK. Good one there. Documentary. Uh, I linked that on the channel. Um, and that's a really, it has, well, the first person that it follows is a excellent, uh, example of just the process of the precarity, uh, mechanisms in that the man shown in the first example has, has worked his entire life. He, he started as a sashine, you know, a contract worker. Uh, he lost that job because the company basically said that they didn't have the budget for him, effectively. And then, you know, he kept on trying to get, you know, new good jobs. But because of that single failure, which was not, you know, even his own responsibility in any way, he was locked out of the good employment. And when the show catches up with him, now, he has no money, he's homeless. It shows him being rejected, you know, uh, from a window washing job, I think it was, because he does not have a fixed address. Now, it's, this is the system where people should fall into precarity and cannot get out. Yeah, and I mean, like, that, that sort of situation isn't unique to Japan. I mean, like, a lot of homeless people in North America are facing that exact problem. Yes, like here, uh, the majority of homeless people have jobs. And, uh, all right. Um, okay, so... I think we should probably, unless there's like any sort of lingering thoughts left uh, about this, I think we should probably move on to recommendations. I have no more uh, thoughts. Does anybody have any? Anybody else have any sort of lingering thoughts left on it? Uh, sorry, what do you mean by recommendations? It's, Rita, you've been. I guess been do on you like recommend five... reading this book? Yes. No. <laughs> oh, oh, you've been on like five book clubs. <laughs> uh, yeah, of course I do. I'm. I like books. <laughs> I like books. <laughs> I like books. I recommend this one too. This is definitely a book, and I would recommend it. I personally, <laughs> me, yes, I would recommend this book. But if a person definitely has to go into this with a certain humor, um, if only for their own sanity. But otherwise, I would absolutely recommend this book. Not Cavallaro would recommend. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a pretty good litmus. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I, I would definitely recommend this book. Um, there's a lot of really... I think this book is badass. Um, wow. Wow. I can certainly see her walking around with, like... Yeah, a flamethrower and sunglasses and stuff. 
No. <laughs> Flamethrower and sunglasses. Hi, I'm a cultural anthropologist. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that's pretty much it. Um, I don't know if her discussion of Butler in this book uh, would be in any way sufficient to understand Butler's theories, so I'd suggest reading Butler instead of reading this book for that uh, theory of precarity, because I think Alison's precarity here is her own stylization. Oh. Oh. Yeah, I think that's a good position. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, One point I liked about the book didn't mention this. Okay. Uh, was, uh, you know, she uses the Japanese words, and I found that very helpful. I don't know about any of you, but I found that uh, very helpful because I could relate the ideas that were being discussed uh, quite well when she was using those terms. Like it, it just mm-hmm. it made everything more cohesive in my experience. I was just wondering if people liked that, or maybe they found it annoying. I highlighted all of the Japanese words, more so just in case I didn't recognize them, since I'm studying it anyway. It's like, all right, vocabulary. Um, and yeah, it's 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 really helpful. Uh, all these all these terms, um, because it's really helping me sort of try and break it down or see like how these terms. Are. It's it's just been really helpful. Mm, but I also mean, you know, at points when she's talking about what people, you know, were saying in Japanese, like it could be one or the other, but when she uses the term, you know more accurately what they were saying. I think that, especially when it's the, it was the term kame, and oh, then yeah. he specified, I don't mean the word resource, it's more like reserves, you know, your savings account or things like that. Ah oh, yes, and and even you know when she discusses the, their their uh, scrupulations on vocabulary, like um the Mikoto Yuasa's uh, description of Hinan, you know poverty as opposed to being poor. Ah, bimbo, which was more of just an economic state. Yeah, bimbo is like mm-hmm. I don't have money. Mm-hmm. Or as he meant, it was more a poverty of the soul as well, social poverty. Oh yeah, um, and even actually, sorry, that that it comes across um, her ideas even when she's using that. Like, remember she said that Kodokushi is literally lonely or something. Ah. Uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, it's not. Literally, that is death in isolation. I guess I will say as a final thought, for me, it's a kind of a personal final thought since I've been living and working here. Um, there is still, I think, a sense of worry amongst people. Uh, I guess what the one situation I thought of while I was reading the book was when I went to... Um, an enkai or drinking party with some elementary school teachers. And one of them, who I'm pretty friendly with, discussed worry regarding her daughter um, 
my daughter not really being able to find steady work and um, she tried to explain it in English which wasn't very good bless her though nonetheless I understood what she was saying though um, I guess she essentially was saying her daughter does not like men so you know homosexual woman so she worried about her daughter's future and how people might view her daughter as being in the wrong for feeling that way and I guess because of that when I read some things in the book I couldn't help but feel like how you know how many people do I know could could this apply to here just where I live and I will say the beginning when she touched upon um the disaster. I know that's still a very difficult thing that people are going through here. That the same teacher also mentioned how, you know, when that happened here in Sendai, she was fine, but there were people she knew who had either lost a significant amount in terms of property or they had just lost relatives or friends in terms of livelihood, you know, their lives. So I guess for me, um, that's, I guess, why I wanted to read the book so much and why I wanted to be part of this discussion, just because I guess the idea hit closer than I think I had ever really anticipated. Because, you know, yes, I guess we're all interested in Japan, but I think having some sort of personal contact, like Greedo, you have the friend in Hokkaido. I think that does add an important aspect to um, engaging with the text. I will say this book is kind of relatable because, I mean, I graduated from college and I couldn't secure a full-time job for the life of me. And then you know, maybe I had some part-time work here or there. And then at some point I just said, well, why don't I try applying for uh, the JET program? Because I have nothing else. There's nothing else going on. So that's sort of what it was my own, I guess, precarious situation that brought me to what she calls precarious Japan. So I guess there is a relatability factor. So, uh, yeah, I think that's pretty much it. The next book we're going to be taking a look at is we're going to be going back to anime. Um, and we're going to be looking at uh, Seiyu whose um, book, Frames of Anime, Culture and Image Building. I'm so happy. What was, what was, that, what was, what was that gasp for? I'm happy. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, so that's the next book we're going to be looking at. Um, uh, as always, thank you everybody for listening. Uh, thank you everybody for being, uh, on here and joining us. Um, I'm going to be leaving Twitter links for everybody down in the video description. Definitely check them out. Um, definitely check out, uh, Cindy's, uh, you're the editor, uh, you're an editor for Yatatachi, right? 
Uh, I'm a senior contributor. I Sometimes I do a bit of editing, but mostly uh, writing for the site. Okay. Um, should I link that in the video description, or do you have something else you want me to link? No, I'm sure the owner of the site would be happy if you linked the website there in the bottom. So okay. Most definitely. All right. Okay. So, yeah, definitely take a look at uh, Yatatachi. Uh, like Joe, I tweet animals and food, but I also post cute quotes. <laughs> there, you, there you go. It's value-added propositions. Um, but yeah, everybody's going to be tweeted uh, down in... Uh, everybody's going to be linked in the video description. And uh, yeah, that is pretty much it. Uh, thank you for being here. And I hope you guys... Enjoy your day. Oh, you, but Joe posts about Scooby-Doo. <laughs> now, that was a one-time thing, man, but it was hilarious. I'd recommend reading that, that too. falls into the simple thing. I'd read that again. <laughs> I'd read that out loud. <laughs> Absolutely. What, what happened? Oh, nothing.